the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. I heard that introduction. I thought, hey, that's me. So welcome to the program. I am Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a radio show dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, life questions, anything and everything that's going on. I'll do the best that I can to give you the information that you desire. All you have to do is call us. Area code 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app and communicate your question that way. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Just push the Call Now banner at the top of the screen, and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. One more time, 340-9585. Busy weekend. I'm sure it is at your church, too. For us, it's Communion Sunday. We get to participate in the table of the Lord, which is an honor and a privilege. Uh, Tonight, I get to teach uh, the very first Bible study in the book of Hebrews, uh, the book that presents the book that presents Jesus in all of his glory. I'll tell the church tonight that the message isn't coming from Jesus in the book of Hebrews because Jesus is the message. This book is unlike any other in our Bibles. Jesus is God's final word. And just tonight we begin the process of finding out just how great and glorious he is, how superior he is to anything, anyone who's ever lived, who's ever been created. It's just about Jesus. So I get to do that tonight. Uh, Let me see. I had something else. Let me get to the questions. My first question is actually five questions from Mary. Um, and Mary says the subject is church beliefs. She says, I have a few questions about Calvary Chapel. Now, let me um, be very specific here before I get started in the questions. I am the pastor of Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, Texas. Uh, you know what, Mary, I'm going to ha- hold this. We got a phone call and I'll take the phone call first and come back to this one in just a moment. Let's go to Tim calling from San Antonio on line one. Tim, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Brother Ron. Got a, got a question for you. On the Catholic Church, I hear you speaking against them pretty heavily, and I'm in tune with that. But I do have a problem with, I guess, Christmas and how it is kind of that and Easter and really all of the holidays. And you probably answered this before, but can you give me your thoughts why we as Christians still use those terms as rather than Resurrection Sunday or 
nativity or something like that rather than using the same Catholic terms that have been, I don't know, indoctrinated into us or what we've become accustomed to. Yeah, I, I can do that, Tim. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Well, one thing I want to explain, I don't talk against Catholics or the Catholic faith. Um, I tell the truth. The, 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 the faith is um, doctrinally problematic. Um, uh, it is a combination of faith and works. Um, it's being a part of a church rather than belonging to Jesus. There's just so many doctrinal problems in the Catholic Church that uh, I, I don't... Uh, it, it's just it's just unhealthy. That's all. It, it, it is not to say I am not communicating that there aren't Catholics who are born again Christians. What I always communicate is that, that it's very hard to be because the church doesn't teach the need to belonging to the church. Being part of the church is 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 what saves you from their perspective. Um, they have the right Jesus. They have the right Father. They have the right Holy Spirit. So um, they're 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 connected to us. But the problem is, apart from being born again, apart from knowing Jesus, having a personal relationship with him that isn't based on religion, well, if that's the case, they're not part of the family. So some are, some aren't. So, Tim, I hope that makes sense. Regarding Christmas and Easter, um, one of the things that we as intelligent Christians have to get over is our insistence on a word or phrase. What what we want to do is do what Jesus does. He he doesn't look at the outward appearance. He looks at the things of the heart. And I don't know a single Christian who, when he says or she says Happy Easter or Merry Christmas, if they're thinking of Saturnalia or they're thinking of the pagan um, uh, fertility festivals uh, that were associated with Easter. What God has done and what the church has done in, in the West, especially, is we've taken two Pagan celebrations, uh, Astara, uh, Easter, uh, and and uh, uh, the pagan celebrations of Saturnalia for Christmas, and we've taken those days, and we've redeemed them, Tim. We've turned them into um, uh, days that that honor Jesus Christ. When we say Happy Easter, we're celebrating the resurrection. Now, personally, I say. Uh, Happy Resurrection Day more than I say uh, Easter Sunday. The resurrection, of course, the central focus of our faith. It's the thing that that makes our faith alone true and and legitimate. So it's very important that we understand that that's what we're celebrating. And, And just because somebody uses the wrong term, I think what God would want us to do, I know what he would do, is is he'd look at the intent of their heart and he wouldn't sort of be legalistic, he wouldn't say, well, you know, I'm not going to bless them because they said Easter, because they said Christmas. It's what we've done. And and Tim, prior to Christmas coming, just a, a little while, short while ago, we had several phone calls. People say, should we be celebrating Christmas? It's a pagan holiday, and why do you advocate that? Um, we We all are pagans, and Jesus redeemed us. And what we've done is what God has done. We've taken that which was evil and turned it for good. And we need to be, as Christians, we need to be more charitable. Getting to the, 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 the point of what people mean, rather than dividing over the words. Uh, when I say Merry Christmas to somebody, uh, everybody knows I'm not saying uh, Happy Saturnalia. When I say Happy Easter to somebody, if that's what I say, or I'll say our Easter message this year is, uh, I'm not celebrating a, a, a pagan fertility rite. What I'm doing is celebrating the two events that sort of bookend our faith, Jesus' entrance into the world and Jesus' exit from the world until he returns again. So, Tim, thanks. I hope that helps you understand at least our position here. Um, I just don't think there's a whole lot of value in um, parsing over words when, in fact, we know what people mean. I also think, and I'll say this one final thing, I think when we are judging somebody's heart because they use the wrong words, I think we're holding ourselves to a standard that we can't maintain. I promise you that if you're judging somebody else, I'm not talking to you, Tim, I'm talking generally now, but if I'm judging somebody else for what they do or what they don't do, what I'm really saying is you're not as good a a Christian as I am. You're not as pure doctrinally as I am. And that sounds a whole lot like pride. 
Great question, Tim. Thank you very, very much. Let me get to the question from our email inbox from Mary. Uh, Mary, what I was saying, the question to you about Calvary Chapel, I, I'm only going to represent Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. I'm going to answer these questions based on what we believe and who we are. She has five questions. It shouldn't take long. She says, do you teach Acts 2.38? We all know what that says. It says, repent and be immersed or baptized for the remission of your sins and to receive the indwelling guidance of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Of course we teach it. We teach verse by verse through the Bible. What you're asking, I think, with maybe a little bit of an agenda, Mary, is uh, do you insist that baptism is necessary for salvation? And the answer is absolutely not. If we taught that baptism was necessary for salvation, then we would be adding works to this glorious gospel, which says that we're saved by faith or by grace through faith. And the faith not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. There's nothing that we can do except believe. Believe and you will be saved. And and if we add baptism to it, and certainly that's not what Peter meant. He says, uh, he, he was talking to Jews. It's a very specific Jewish construct there. The church for a long time was entirely Jewish. And Jews understood baptism as an outward sign of repentance, so they would be baptized for the remission of your sins. That's simply to say, to acknowledge you're a sinner and ask God to forgive you. But it's the believing. Remember, they were filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 before anybody got baptized. So we do not teach that you must be baptized in order to be saved. We teach that you get baptized because you are saved. It's a cause and effect thing. So that's important. Her second question is, are you a restoration movement, a New Testament Christian church, or non-denominational? Um, you know, the restoration movement is is uh, uh, very heavily works-oriented. It is splintered uh, over the, the, the years uh, since the early 1900s, uh, many times in lots of different ways. So, uh, no, I wouldn't say that we are um, a restoration movement by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, one of the, the the restoration movement's core beliefs is that in order to remain a Christian, um, you've got to pray, you've got to study the Bible, you've got to worship, and remain faithful. Uh, I, I don't know that that describes a whole bunch of people. Heaven is going to be filled with a whole bunch of people that failed in those areas. So we want to be very, very careful um, not to categorize ourselves. Mary, for me, uh, as it relates to our church, um, we are a non-denominational Christian church, period. Uh, We are affiliated with some thousand other Calvary chapels throughout the world. But we're not connected. We're not um, a denomination. Uh, The churches are independently established and run. Uh, We don't give any money to anybody, nor do we get any money from anybody. Uh, We are a non-denominational Christian church. Um, the New Testament Christian church that you speak about is, is are those who, who think the New Testament is the only way that we're supposed to do church. That's the only value we have, and we study only the New Testament. We study the, the, the whole counsel of God. Uh, on Wednesday nights, I, we have an Old Testament Bible study. Uh, on Friday nights and on Sunday mornings, uh, different New Testament Bible studies. Uh, so if you come on a Sunday or if you come on a Friday night, uh, you're going to hear a New Testament verse-by-verse study. I said earlier we're starting in the book of Hebrews uh, tonight, but we are a non-denominational Christian church. Her third question is, do you have communion every Sunday? Uh, Mary, we have communion on the first Sunday of every month um, for the sake of time primarily. That's why we don't have it uh, every time we meet. Uh, the early church, it appears, uh, they would celebrate communion, the the the, the, the cup and the and the bread, uh, every time they met. Um, but we're not instructed biblically that that's what we're to do. Paul says, uh, whenever you do these things, Jesus said the same thing. Remember me whenever you do those things. They didn't give us a prescription. So uh, our communion, our church knows it. We we want to make sure it's on Sunday because we want the larger body to be able to enjoy. Uh, so we, we celebrate communion on the first Sunday of every month. Her fourth question, and Mary, I'm not sure I understand this one. Are you called Christians only as they were in the book of Acts? 
Um, I'm assuming you mean, do we call ourselves uh, Lutherans or Methodists or something like that? We're just a bunch of followers of Jesus. Yes, we're Christians. We're very proud of the name. uh, And that's what I would refer to. I would interchangeably, talking to my church, use the word, you who believe uh, or disciples of Jesus. But we are Christians and we're very proud of the name. Uh, We don't shy away from it the way many are starting to. Uh, We proudly declare that we're Christians. And then her fifth question, she says, also you have a school that is no charge. How does that work? Uh, It works with a lot of money, Mary. Um, You're right. We're we're approaching 20 years uh, of our free school is K through 12. Um, It is open uh, first and foremost to people in our church, but we have a bunch of uh, kids who are not in our church as well. So if the spots are not taken, we open it up to public, um, uh, to the public at large. Uh, It is not a school just for Christians. We have kids that come here unsaved. Um, We want to evangelize. We want to win them to the family, and we do that very often. Uh, It is a very, very... Um, academically difficult school, uh, small classroom sizes, uh, 10 to 11 students per classroom, teacher and an aide in the classes, so kids get plenty of attention, uh, but the, the curriculum is difficult. Uh, we're not trying to make a school where kids can just kind of f- float and, and get by. Uh, we want them to learn, to read, to write, to, to do math. We want them to, to, to find the things in life that interest them. But most importantly, we want to equip them to declare Jesus Christ when they leave the school. Again, we've been doing this now for nearly 20 years. It's very expensive. It is supported 100% by the body here at Calvary Chapel. We never ask for money. Um, there's no fees for anything. We supply uniforms, we supply books, we supply uh, everything that's necessary for school, and and uh, we've been doing it for a long time. Uh, our kids, uh, our school is not accredited, Mary. Uh, people say, well, how are kids going to get in college? We have 100% college placement. Now, not 100% of the kids have gone to college. Many went in the military. Some would take a year or two and work. Uh, we've had a couple get married over the years. So, um, but, but every single graduating senior in this school uh, has been accepted to university. We've had kids uh, uh, accepted to some of the finest universities uh, in the nation. Um, um, this year we have kids accepted to um, uh, Yale, to, to Michigan, to uh, University of Texas, Austin. Uh, our kids test through the roof and the smart kids get Accepted by colleges. So that's how it works. We have 135 kids, Mary, in our school. Uh, We have a a waiting list that is beyond reasonable um, because free is attractive and the quality of education is great. Uh, We have a staff that is fully made up of people that go to our church. We know every teacher. We know their heart and the way they live. So um, we are committed to this school, and we've been doing it for a very, very long time. Um, Texas A&M, we've had kids go to Kansas, Kansas State, uh, Princeton, we've had kids accepted to. So uh, teachers here are doing a really, really great job. Mary, I hope that answers your questions and hope that you weren't writing the questions with an agenda. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from our mobile app anonymously. I was asked if I would share my testimony. I said, yes. I don't know how or what to say. Will you give me some words of encouragement on how I can go about it? Uh, Anonymous, I can. Uh, This is a real privilege. This is a real privilege. One of the things that you need to know in in the depths of your heart is that you are the only living expert on planet Earth regarding what God has done for you. And that's what your testimony is. You know, necessarily we're going to talk about what we used to be, where we came from, the sin in our lives. But we don't want to glorify the sin. We want to emphasize in a testimony um, that we were rescued, we were delivered. That's really important. Sometimes you'll hear people give testimonies and it's all about the jerk I was and the sin I was involved in. And um, 
a testimony is this is what Jesus has done for me. So organize your thoughts. Share your story. Just maybe put five or six bullet point outline thing. Not, Don't go into detail. Give room for the Holy Spirit to move. Uh, and, and just let people know you're, you're sharing your testimony because Jesus said to do that. Remember the guy in the Gospel of John, once I was blind and now I see. He didn't know anything. Who was this guy? What did he do? How did he do it? Hey, I don't know any of that. All I know is once I was blind and now I can see. And the more he shared, the more insight he received from the Holy Spirit. And your testimony, Anonymous, is going to be powerful. So make sure you stay within the time limits that you're given. We don't want to go on and on and on. We don't want to glorify our past. What we want to glorify is the rescuer from our past. And I promise you, when the Spirit fills you up, you'll have no problem knowing what to say. Good for you. Good for saying yes. 340-9585. I absolutely love when that opportunity is provided. Uh, here is another anonymous question. Uh, I am a Christian, but I'm still afraid of death. Is something wrong with my faith? Anonymous, we're all afraid of death. Anybody who tells you they're not isn't being truthful. We are born with an instinct to survive. Add to that anything that is the unknown is scary to us. And because of this instinct to live, we hold on to life. Now, here's the way I usually say to people. Uh, I'm not afraid of dying but I'm certainly not thrilled with the process. And I can be, we all should be a little bit afraid of the process of dying. I've watched people over our 23 plus years here who have gone through such agony and such pain. I don't want to deal with that. Yeah, I'm afraid of that. I don't want to embarrass the Lord or bring shame to him. But there's nothing wrong with your faith. Your life is in Jesus' hands. It's the only place that it can be. And that's where you keep it. Let's go to Cindy calling from San Antonio on line one. Cindy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor. Ron. Hi. I, I, Isaiah is just going to be an absolutely fascinating book to be in on Wednesdays. I was having a possible car problem, and it was raining, so I stayed home and listened on the Internet. But where my question is, is in Isaiah 1, verse 17, there's two different translations, the NIV and the New King James. The New King James says, learn to do good, seek justice. The uh, NIV is learn to do right, seek justice. Those are kind of the same. But then it says rebuke the oppressor in the New King James. And my um, NIV says encouraged the oppressed. And I wondered if you would kind of tell me which is the better translation on that. And, and I'll listen. Um, I'll hang the phone up and listen on the air. Thank you, Cindy. I can do that. Um, let me give you some of the others. The RSV says correct oppression. Um, the uh, Living Bible, um, learn to do good, to be fair, and to help the poor, the fatherless and widows. Um, if we get to the uh, today's English version, um, it says, learn to do right, see that justice is done, help those who are oppressed. So uh, the, the translations are are pretty much interchangeable, but I think the idea is best captured by the 1984 uh, version of the, um, of the um, uh, NIV, uh, the authorized version, the King James version as well, relieve the oppressed. We're to be those who relieve the burdens of those who are oppressed. We're to share their burdens. And if we understand that, then I think we get the, the, the message and, the, and the, the action that is corrected. Um, uh, the New American Standard says, reprove the ruthless. And that's sort of aggressive. It says to take a stand against those who are not doing the right thing, who aren't 
rightly representing the Lord. So um, I think that's probably the best translation. We're to be a source of encouragement. We're to be exhorters. We're to have um, uh, answers for those who are oppressed, uh, to provide hope for those who are oppressed. So, Cindy, thank you for the question. Um, Cindy said that that uh, the book is going to be a fun one, uh, the, uh, the book of Isaiah. Uh, I don't know if I would characterize it as fun, but it is going to be a direct study. Uh, if anybody wants to listen to the first study that I did in Isaiah, it is uh, archived on our website at calvarysa.com. And I got to tell you, it is about as direct as you can possibly be. Uh, and I think that's the way it should be. When God is speaking to his people, people he loves, people he gave birth to, that's you and me, we're born again Christians, and we're not doing right, he loves us so much that he can't be anything but direct. It's going to be a long haul in the book of Isaiah. We've got 30 minutes left in the week. The week is almost over. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh (laughs) welcome back sometimes two minutes goes takes forever sometimes it goes so fast that time it went really really fast here is a question from orville uh don't think it's our orville but we've got a really really nice man named orville in our church uh, he says, is there just one true religion and who gets to decide? Orville, that's the question for the ages. And see, that's the question that every human being who's ever lived, regardless of how they were raised, what religion they were born in, what part of the world they were born in, every single human is going to stand before God on the basis of what he did or she did with that question. There is just one true religion. Jesus said, let me rephrase that. If what Jesus said was true, then there is just one true religion. If what Jesus said wasn't true about who he was and what he came to do, then there's no true religion. That's something that's really important for us to understand. God never intended for us to come to him or approach him on the basis of religion, rituals, doing things. In our study this past Wednesday in Isaiah, God says, I hate your feasts and celebrations. Uh, My soul detests them. The things that you do, who asked you this trampling of my courts? In other words, what God was saying was, I don't want you to come to me on the basis of religion. I want you to come to me on the basis of love. So Orville, here's the thing that you've got to find the answer to for yourself. That doesn't mean that we get to customize what we believe. It's true for you, so it's okay. If it's not true for me, well, then I, my truth is okay. There's only one truth. By definition, the word truth is mutually exclusive. Every religion, every single religion claims to be exclusive. It's our job to find out which one is true. If there is a Muslim who believes as sincerely as it's possibly possible to believe that, that his or her religion is the truth, they better have some evidence. And of course, I say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I say that because he did. He said, no one comes to the Father except through him. That means you can't go through Allah, you can't go through Buddha, you can't go through Confucius. You can't be reincarnated again and again and suddenly work your way up, uh, somehow over over eons, work your way up to be acceptable to God. There's no such thing as nirvana. So here's what we do. We have to say, well, why does Jesus say he's the only way? And is there any proof? And the answer is yes, there is proof. Jesus was a real historical figure. There's no doubt No honest scholarship would ever deny the historicity of Jesus. 
Not only that, it is undeniably fact that Jesus lived and died. He was murdered. There's all kinds of references in non-biblical history, secular history, about this man, Jesus, who claimed to be the Christ. And the fact that he didn't stay dead, that he rose from the dead, that followers went after him. There's also no doubt, based on fact, overwhelming evidence, that Jesus didn't stay dead, which means he's still alive. The only person thus far to be raised from the dead, never to die again. And that proof, that empty tomb where his body should have been, Orville, that empty tomb shouts that Jesus was telling the truth. He said he was God in human flesh. He said that he would forgive the world of sins. And Orville, I would beg you, I would beg you to find out whether or not that's true. I've shared this many times in this program in response to similar questions, but I'll do it very quickly again. Uh, When I got saved that day in February of 1991, uh, my transformation was radical. Instantly, I knew that I was saved. But, But I was also, I still am a very curious person. I had so many questions. I didn't know how to live as a Christian. I didn't know what really being a Christian meant. I knew I was going to heaven. I knew I was forgiven. And so I had questions, and every time I asked a question, people would say, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. And I didn't understand how the Bible could be God's Word if it was also written by men. I knew that to be true. But how could that then be God's Word? And so I made it my mission in life to find out if the Bible was true. If it's just another supposedly holy book, uh, it has no value. But if it's true, if it's really the the words from God, the word of God, then I needed to find out. Took me less than three months, and I was completely 100% convinced that the Bible was the word of God, and I could count on every word in it. And it was at that point, Orville, where all my questions faded away. I had no doubt, never had any doubt about the truth of the Word of God or the reality of Jesus in me, the hope of glory. No doubt at all that Christianity alone is true. And that's what I challenge you to find out. If I could decide for you, I would, but I can't. Now you're listening to a program like this. seems evident the Holy Spirit's knocking on the door of your heart chase him and find out. As to who gets to decide Orville again, there's only one God. He makes the rules. Our job is to follow him. I hope that helps. 340-9585. I have two questions that are sort of related, sort of political. So, um, I'll, I'll answer them as quickly as I can. Melvin wants to know, how should I respond to a Facebook friend who says that Trump is the most immoral president in our history? Uh, I don't think you respond to him or to her at all. Why would you defend President Trump? Now, he may be a president you support, but, but surely, Melvin, Christians cannot support his behavior. He certainly is proven, has been proven to lack moral fiber. He says and does things that are unkind, lacking love. Somebody said, well, Pastor Ron, when I said this once before, I said, Pastor Ron, you're judging him. Well, I'm not judging him. I'm just saying that there's no love. And without love, we're just making noise. He's a noisemaker. Now, do I think he's doing some really good things? Yes. Given the two choices that we had, Am I glad that he was the winner of the election? Yes. But he's making our lives way more difficult than he has to with his behavior. And for Christians to support that behavior, 
It's not good enough to say, well, he's better than the alternative, so I have no choice but to support him. No, as Christians, we're to be salt and light. We've got to call those who are walking in the darkness out of the darkness. So, no, uh, I wouldn't even respond if you feel like you have to. Just say, yeah, I'm embarrassed by the terrible things he says and does. But understand that every time we try to pretend he's one of us or that he's got reasons for the things he does, it's just a great big scarlet H on every one of us. That H, of course, is for hypocrites. So um, I personally believe, and this may offend some people, but uh, I think uh, Barack Obama's most immoral president we've ever had. He changed our world and in terms of morals. He's led a generation of young people to a path of destruction, murdering babies, advocating the free exercise of doing such by fighting for gay marriage and legitimizing homosexuality, transgenderism. There's a lot of blood on his head. Here's the sort of related question. Diane says, Pastor Ron, I'm losing hope over the direction our nation is going. I pray, but now especially with the Democrats taking over the House, I'm scared that our country is going to be ruined. Where is our hope? Diane, our hope is in Jesus. Our hope isn't in Republicans. Our hope isn't in Democrats. Our hope is in Jesus. And here's something I want you to think about, Diane. Usually when I get a question like this, it's somebody who doesn't want to have any difficulties. We want things to go well. We don't want to have people dislike us. Um, the truth is, a nation that's, as fall, that's fallen as far as ours already has, and certainly is going to fall even farther, is a nation that is ripe for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think about this, Diane. There's going to be a whole bunch of people like you only without Jesus, who really have no hope. And they're going to be terrified. And you and I, we have good news for those people. If you think our world is okay with God because Republicans were in control, you haven't been watching. Or you don't know your Bible. Jesus is not a Republican. So here's what we have to understand, that the worse the world gets, the riper it is for revival. All we have to do, Diane, is be willing to carry the message, the only message of hope. So don't be scared. Share the gospel. Be filled with the Holy Spirit and watch what happens. Darren asked this question. He said, if the rapture happens, what will happen to the people left behind? Darren, it's not if the rapture happens, it's when it's going to happen. Uh, if it happens while we're still here, the people that are left behind are going to be plunged into the judgment of God. The Great Tribulation, the final seven years that commences following the rapture of the church, is the judgment of God being poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. I can't wait for the rapture to happen. I wish it would happen right now before I got the next sentence out of my mouth. But God is patient, unwilling that any should perish. So what our focus should be, Darren, is focusing on those who are still here who don't know Jesus. And we should tell people that Jesus is coming again soon. We should tell them about the terrible judgment that's going to come upon those who are left behind. Read Revelation chapter 4 through chapter 19. So you can share with people that's what's going to happen. I had somebody once tell me, Darren, that, that well, well, that's not fair if God is going to just plunge everybody into judgment. But, but judgment is the only way to deal with the Christ-rejecting world. So the people who are left behind at the rapture, some are going to get saved. They're going to pay for the privilege with their lives. Even those who survived the whole seven years are going to be plunged into darkness that this world has never known, we can't possibly imagine. 
if during the seven-year Great Tribulation people don't accept Jesus Christ, then they're going to spend eternity in hell. That, too, is the judgment of God. So, Darren, the best thing to do is tell people, Jesus is coming. Let's share the good news of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen from the dead. That's the hope that we have. It's the only hope that we have. 340-9585, Kevin says, Pastor Ron, since God has rejected Israel, how can you say Jews will be saved? I had a question um, either earlier this week or late last week about will Jews be getting saved during the Great Tribulation? The answer is absolutely. In fact, the greatest revival in the history of the world is going to happen in those last seven years. Um, but, but Kevin, God has never rejected Israel. Jews rejected him, Jesus. Take a read at the first four verses, I think, maybe five verses of Romans chapter 9. You want to hear God's heart about the people of Israel? As Paul saying of the people who are trying to kill him, the people who are causing him all kinds of trouble, the people that have tried to kill him, that have tortured him. He said, and I'll paraphrase, he said, you know, I'm telling you the truth. The Holy Spirit affirms it. I know this is going to be hard to believe, but I'd give my place in heaven for my brothers, the Jews, if only they'd believe. If it were possible, that's what I'd do. Well, that's the heart of God toward Israel. God always has a remnant in Israel. Among his people, individual Jews, he always has believers, a remnant. The thing that we really need to understand is that Jews, like everybody else, are condemned for eternity apart from becoming born-again believers. That's what Jesus has been saying from the moment he stepped foot on this planet. But don't ever think God has rejected Israel. How could God reject his chosen precious people throughout millennia now? They have been rejecting him. But God extends his arms to them. The Old Testament prophets say, all day long I hold out my arms. He's pleading with them to come to him. And there's a day coming when Jesus will return. Revelation chapter 19, you can read about it in the final chapters of the prophet Zechariah. They will see him return. They'll look upon the one they pierced. I'll say, where did you get these wounds? And he will say, I got these in the womb, in the in the house of my friends. And they will repent. And if you take Zechariah's prophecy literally, and I do, Kevin, one third of the Jews who are alive on the earth at that time, and especially there in Israel when they see him, and everybody's going to see his return, one third of the Jews will proclaim his the Lord and Savior. They will do so under the ministry of the two witnesses, Moses and Elijah, and the ministry of the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, and Jews will be saved. By the way, we have Jews who get saved all the time now. They come to faith in Jesus Christ. And that's something all of us should be praying for all the time. Here is a question a caller asks. After the rapture, the people that are left behind, the ones that accept Jesus Christ as their Savior, do they receive the Holy Spirit? The answer, of course, uh, caller, is yes. They receive the Holy Spirit. And in fact, they will be empowered to, to, to go out and witness to others. Now, I, I don't want this to sound like a Left Behind novel, because while the Left Behind novels are entertaining, there are some theological problems with it. But the idea is God is going to use his remnant. Remember, he always has a remnant on earth. And in the Great Tribulation, all over this world, people are going to repent. They're going to accept Jesus Christ. They're going to be filled with the Spirit. And I believe they will walk in greater power than we can possibly imagine until such time that they're required to give their lives. And they will be required to give their lives those martyrs, those witnesses under the altar of God that we find in Revelation chapter 5. And later, how long, O Lord, till you avenge our death? He just tells them, be patient, that time is coming. 
but yes, they will be filled with the Holy Spirit uh, and great power. It'll be a time where miracles return, the kind of miracles that we read about in the book of Acts. Those are the kind of things that will be done. So thank you for the question. 340-9585, here is a question from Lori. How could God use men in the Old Testament who had multiple wives? Isn't that rewarding sin? Um, You know, Lori, God chose people and his faithfulness was not negated by their faithlessness. I could ask the question of you. You could certainly ask it of me. How could God use that Pastor Ron who did this or said that? Or, Well, God's an expert at using horribly flawed humans. Now, one thing that I want you to understand about the men in the Old Testament who had multiple wives, some of those men appear in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, the Hall of Fame of Faith. Every one of those people had terrible consequences that they had to survive, that they had to live through as a result of their sinful choice to marry multiple women. Abraham, our world is still paying for his trip to Egypt and bringing Hagar back. And well, the world's still divided. You think about David, and even worse, Solomon. The consequences that they lived through as a result of being married to multiple wives, when God said, don't do that. But one thing, Lori, I hope encourages you, is that God didn't say to David after David married multiple wives, well, I changed my mind. Solomon is even a greater example, because Solomon... Remember in in Kings when he said that the the Shekinah of God filled the temple. He saw things, he experienced things that that intimacy with God that almost no other man ever has. And yet he got full of himself and he ended up having a thousand women in his life that led him astray. There was no reward for that. God used him in spite of that. If I reworded your question, Lori, how could God use men in the New Testament or how could God use men in the church today who didn't love their wives the way Christ loved the church? And then you say, isn't that rewarding sin? Say, no, God uses us because we're all he's got to use. If he wanted to use only that which was perfect, he would use angels. So God never condones the multiple wives. He never rewards them. In fact, as I said, there are unbelievably dire consequences that every one of them faced. Bradley, I think we're inside four minutes now. Uh, Bradley says, Pastor Ron, if someone does not believe in penal substitutionary atonement, is their doctrine false? Yes, Bradley, it's false. Now, penal substitutionary atonement is not an essential of our Christian faith. It's possible to have a misunderstanding of penal substitutionary atonement and still be a believer. But the doctrine is false and it's bad and it's dangerous. Isaiah 53, the, the, the punishment for our peace was placed upon him to deny that Jesus Christ took my place on the cross would make me a false teacher. Um, the penal substitution atonement is falling out of favor these days with the internet. I don't understand why God is a God who punishes. Isn't God love? All those things. You have to understand that God is also holy and that he's just. And in fact, his holiness is his overarching attribute. That means he who knew no sin had to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. There was a business transaction conducted at Calvary, Bradley. So, yes, Jesus took my place. Yes, he was punished. So I don't have to be. Yes, he was tortured. It's cruel. But he loved you so much that he did it. And if you're talking to somebody who denies 
the PSA, the penal substitutionary atonement of the Lord. Uh, they don't know Jesus. They don't know the heart of God. Here is the last question. You've got two minutes. I can do one more. Randall wants to know, Pastor Ron, pastors are supposed to be men of God. Uh, no, I'm sorry, men of good character. So why do so many pastors seem to fall into sinful lifestyles? Is this just hypocrisy? Yeah, Randall, it is hypocrisy, but I think it goes back to the question of, of God using men who married multiple wives. God uses flawed people. Now, if you listen to this program, you know I believe that if a pastor commits adultery, that disqualifies him from pastoral ministry. Uh, I think that's a violation of trust so sacred. Um, and yet we see that 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 happens. Um, a pastor is no more spiritual, no holier than anybody else. My flesh, I tell my church all the time, my flesh is just as stinky, just as bad as theirs is, if not worse. Not only that, my flesh is no better than it was before I was saved. And so if I sow to the flesh, I'm going to sin. And yes, I'm a hypocrite. But if I sow to the Spirit, then I'm going to demonstrate the good fruit of the Spirit. So the reason pastors or anybody else falls into sinful lifestyles, Randall, is because they separate themselves from Jesus. They do what they want instead of doing what God wants for them. One of the fears of my life, Randall, is blowing it at the end. I don't. I just don't want to be seen to be unfaithful. Hey, great day today. Thanks for the questions and the phone calls. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. Have a great weekend in church. Find somebody that you can encourage at church this Sunday. We'll see you next Monday, Lord willing, on AM 630, The Word. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.